No sooner had they got back from Holland than they were on their way again, this time bound for Hong Kong and Sydney. George, Paul, John, and Jimmy Nichols standing in for drummer Ringo. There he is, second from the left. Ringo was in hospital with acute tonsillitis. Sydney welcomes the Beatles. It's 6.30 in the morning. It's pitch dark. It's wet, cold, and windy. And uh, some three or 4,000 teenagers have been waiting, many of them, right through the night to welcome their idols, the Beatles from Britain. Welcome to Australia. Which one am I talking to? Paul, how do you do? Paul, what sort of a trip have you had from uh, Hong Kong? Okay, yes, very nice. Very nice. You're looking forward, of course, to your Australian tour? Mm. Yes, lovely. Uh, I didn't expect anyone to be here, though. Not at this hour of the morning. Two o'clock in the morning. Two o'clock in the morning. What time is it? Yes, two. Welcome this week's one there was fab i'm ed chan and i'm john stone first off ringo has decided that he's going to tour yet again in the fall 81 years old and he's going to go on tour for yet another two months well it doesn't appear like he's going to stop until he has to we're getting to the point where it's 50 50 that paul may be done you know i think if he were going out on tour this year he would have announced something by now and maybe he's just taking a year off, but I don't know. There, there's so many ways to continue with your art and not have to go out on tour. But who knows? It's all speculation. Yeah, and Ringo genuinely enjoys touring. Not that Paul doesn't, but it's a little bit easier for Ringo. The tour will start in Tucson on September the 19th, travel around New Mexico, Missouri, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago. So Kit will get a chance to see him. Columbus. But not down here. Not anywhere near here. Not Louisiana, not Texas. Arkansas is probably about the closest. The The 10th of October in Little Rock at the Simmons Bank Arena. And then it closes the 13th. Experience the go-to gaming destination of Texas. At the Windstar World Casino and Resort, Thackerville, Oklahoma. Oh, you want to go gamble some? <laughs> probably not. No, you know, uh, I saw Ringo not that long ago. 
that, that may be my last Ringo concert. I don't know. <laughs> well, I am going to go and see him in San Francisco in about six weeks time. Uh, Jay Young Kim, the man who wrote the original theme, he has just had a kid. So I'm going to go visit him in San Francisco and I'm going to take the opportunity to go and see Ringo in a nice little theater, apparently. Cool. All right. So that's number one. Number two, a story which is really only tangentially Beatle related, but I find it funny because, well, as they say in Yellow Submarine, nothing is Beatle proof. Someone dumped 500 pounds of spaghetti alongside a riverbank in New Jersey. That's right. And now you can't tell everybody why that was important. The only place I could think of where I had seen someone with wheelbarrows of spaghetti it's Magical Mystery Tour, and I guess Mr. Creosote from Monty Python? Jesse, not output. I am, I am. I am already. Three times this week already. For goodness sake, Jesse, sit down. Remember. I don't care. This is the way he would have wanted it. Pasta. No other connection. I saw this story and they were wondering where did this pasta come from? And all I could think of is, oh, I guess Auntie Jessie must have come by for a visit. Yeah. <laughs> and John in his twitchy Dykins outfit. Right. One more thing, you know, we've been talking about, oh, wouldn't it be great if they do a Beatles Doctor Who story someday? Well, it looks like we may well be approaching that day pretty soon. They released some publicity photos of the next doctor and his companion, and, and they're dressed in 60s clothes. And there were set photos today. They have Abbey Road street signs, and they have made up a crosswalk to look like Abbey Road. And they brought in a vintage white beetle. Uh, well, maybe they're doing something. I can't imagine they'd go to all that trouble if it were just a one-off or just a brief little scene. Perhaps. I mean, you, you know, you can't tell with TV production. It could be just a one-off thing for the joke. That's an awful lot of work to just do that. And and the other thing is there is this slight resemblance between the new doctor in his afro and Billy Preston. So, so maybe they'll find a way to work that in. <laughs> Russell T. Davies may have been sitting around watching Get Back and said, oh, well, that's a lovely idea. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> Could I'm be. Trying to think of the of the uh, the episode where it's like, you know, no, I'm not Billy. I'm Doctor Who. We will find out early next year, but at the very least, there's going to be a, a a one-off little joke. I kind of tend to think that they're probably doing at least a little bit more than that because Russell T. Davies very much likes to do Doctor runs into famous people. So he did a story with Shakespeare. 
He did a story with Agatha Christie. He did a story with Vincent Van Gogh. So uh, why not do a Beatles story? All right. There was a film made for ABC, not our ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Company, covering the Beatles' visit in 1964 to Australia and New Zealand. It's 50 years since the Beatles came to town. Uh, where do you expect to find here in Australia? Australians. <laughs> but what happened on stage was only half the story. Bloody amazing. From panic in the streets. The army was called in. To sexy scandals. I could have shot enough X-rated footage. And backstage. John looked at me and he said, come up for a party. Come and feel the Beatlemania. They changed everything. When the Beatles drove us wild. It's perfect. Tuesday at 8.30 on ABC One. Yeah, a great trip of theirs and uh, had a huge impact on Australian society and definitely is well worth the documentation. Some of it reminds me of the Beatles in India that we uh, talked about a couple months back, just in, in as much as it's interesting to get a different country's view of how they got to Beatlemania. Yeah, but I was kind of amazed at how similar it was to the American story. You know, it's very, very close. You know, those crowds that we see in Australia, they make New York look like a tea party. It had a huge impact. But for the same reasons, it was like a generation of kids, baby boomers. And don't forget, Australia was in the war. During the Pacific campaign of World War II, the American alliance with Australia was an important element of the Allied forces' efforts to work together. Lying within reach of the Malay archipelago and other Japanese-controlled territories, Australia was a perfect base for the American military to establish themselves. It would serve as a starting point for the Pacific Campaign, along with deploying troops and equipment to the front line of the fighting. The alliance between the two countries that was forged during the war has remained solid ever since. So they're kind of looking for direction, and they're looking for fashion, and they've got disposable income. It's kind of the same situation. They start out this thing. They do a little montage, you know, talking about how Australia was almost a like a microcosm of Beatlemania throughout the rest of the world. Although, you know, I kind of think that when John Lennon was talking about Satyricon on tour, not that they didn't have sex around the globe, but... It seems that there was more of it on this tour. There was no before. This was what was going on. The later tours, you know, there's a point of reference, but this one, it, it was all happening. And the frenzy and mania involved in all this played a big part in what they got away with. There were girls around in the States for sure, but it seems to me that it wasn't quite the same sort of parties every night there are some differences i mean they stayed in the various cities for longer periods of time you know in america they kind of went from city to city to city to city in in that august september tour one night in a hotel was doing good they'd finish a concert and fly to the next wherever they're going to be and then get some sleep in the hotels because they got a show that night it was atlanta to here at like, you know, 1.30 or 2 a.m. to the hotel, to the press conference at 11 or 12 the next morning, to the afternoon show, to the evening show, back to the plane. Right. That was here, but that was everywhere pretty much in the States on that tour. Well, Beatlemania was in full flower for sure. 
keeping in mind Hard Day's Night wasn't out yet. But, you know, they had screaming fans in Holland where they were before. And, I mean, you know, there were certainly fans February. And, I mean, you know, they had large numbers of kids outside the hotel at the plaza. But it still wasn't quite like this. No, yeah, this was totally different. Really not too much went out to Australia. To the British, it was still probably this prison colony. Yeah, right. So the, them hitting Australia, and they were hot, that certainly had an impact. But Australia, that tour is almost what the Beatles were initially, you know? It's a microcosm of the whole thing. Yeah. 64 to 65 for sure. I mean, 66 was kind of its own beast. After watching some of the pictures of the crowds, I'm surprised they went on with it, that they toured for two more years. Some of those crowds were scary. And there wasn't the police protection that there needed to be. People didn't know what was coming. The police now have no concerted rank to call on. They have all been isolated completely swapped by the crowd they too are trying to get out of the crush and reform but they have no opportunity at all you know you talk about it being so similar to what we would see in america they have a police official who is saying almost the same thing we would get in kansas city later and the uninhibited fun-loving beetles are clowning again there are crowds everywhere they go they always seem to be on stage I think the mindset of Kiwi authority at the time was that it was not going to happen in New Zealand because their youth was of sturdier stock, was a little more mature, and that they would sort of listen to their elders and betters and that they would behave themselves so they wouldn't see the disgraceful scenes that had been witnessed across the ditch. And anyway, security and police escorts were something that you did for royalty. You didn't do it for pop singers. You're in a state of things where even, you know, there's the story of, I forget where city they were in the U.S., but I think Mal says, you know, so I went to the guy and he goes, okay, so where do we plug in? He goes, plug in? I thought they played guitars, (laughs) you know, and so people just weren't conscious of what was going on. Uh, Or, you, you know, you go to these places that never had these kind of acts before, so they had no experience. This tour was something very different very different for everybody even somebody acting as a tour manager wasn't really managing the tour they were managing the band they were leaving it up to the promoters to work out a lot of the details we are fortunate that we do have a prime example of what the live show looked like on this tour because they filmed a special the beatles sing for shell what was a bootleg a long time ago one that Everybody really likes it. It's it's the help cover with the shell behind them. Yeah. It's one of the best performances live that's on tape. It's it's really great. I mean, you really feel the power of John Lennon in this whole concert. And McCartney, too. It's a shame that Brian made the deal for the TV special, but he wasn't going to let them have the entire concert. And according to the story, which is not in this special, but they actually also re-aired the Beatles sing for shell on channel nine in Australia back in 2020, they had found the original tape and they cleaned it up and they used that as an excuse to air it. But there are clear cuts in the video. And the story is that Brian actually ensured that they would never be able to use the tape that they didn't have, he watched them do the cuts and watched them destroy 
the video of a couple of songs from the show. But fortunately, it went out live on the radio, so we do have the audio of the complete show. Right. But we're getting slightly ahead, I think. All right. After this sort of montage of here's what's happening, here's what we're going to talk about for the next hour, uh, they start in in a general introduction. Here's what the 60s were like in Australia. A strange new sound drifts in from a distant shore. We just needed someone to show us the way, and John, Paul, George, and Ringo were the flag bearers the way that music sounded against what was normally on the radio. And based on the acts that I saw playing Australia, it was very much the gentle side of rock and roll. That was the style. And so the Beatles were completely different. In comes the Beatles. And one great thing about this is there's no little sound alike groups or, you know, just generic sixties music they actually managed to use Beatles songs as the bed for everything they want to do through this documentary. Yeah. Here comes Twist and Shout. Here comes the Beatles. And the everything they were doing was new and different. Yeah. And I forget who the, the commentator is, but, you know, he's Australian. And he said, you know, the Beatles came at just the time where we needed somebody to show us the way. And that's what the Beatles were for them. Just like what we saw in India and just like what we saw here in the States, whether it was because of Kennedy's assassination or not. Well, it it was time for something to happen. And here it was. Yes. Then they make the association we usually get. uh, There's a fashion designer named Jenny Key. I I guess she was uh, to become uh, a contemporary of Mary Quant. Yeah, yeah. I think probably a little later. Definitely known in... Australia. Jenny and Linda created an art movement. We just made magic together. We had a special friendship. Icons of Australian fashion. It was a totally different statement about what fashion could be. We were inspired by our country. We'd have these ideas that would go like that. It was Australia coming into the world. We stood out in Paris and Milan. There were tensions between them. Both of us went through life and death experiences. And then she'll spring a surprise on us later on. As with all of these U.S. documentaries, here comes the charts. And the Beatles hold six of the seven top places in the charts. And what I found interesting, you look at what's there, half of those are... Are EPs, yeah. The Twist and Shout EP, the All My Loving EP, and the Beatles Hits EP. And I don't know exactly the history of the Australian charts, but it's interesting that they weren't getting the Beatles stuff or reacting to the Beatles stuff in 63, they were getting this at the same time as the rest of the world was. Which brings us to something that you had mentioned earlier. You have an Australian promoter named Ken Brosniak, who in July of 1963, well, the same period we were talking about just last week, and we were talking about the latest of the Pop Go the Beatles shows. In July 1963, Melbourne promoter Ken Brosiak booked the then little-known group to tour Australia for a fee of just £1,000 per week. 
Ken Brodziak and Aztec Services were a major promotions company. He was an impresario of great standing. He toured Marlena Dietrich and he toured, you know, acts of, of great substance. A living legend. But he, you know, like every promoter, had his ears attuned to what might be new and what might draw a crowd. Four months before their tour down under, the Beatles hit number one in America. Ken Brosniak came over and convinced Brian Epstein to bring the Beatles to Australia, and they had settled on a thousand pounds a week. Right, a great deal because uh, Brian honored his contract. Part of that gives me pause because they later added some dates, and I've always wondered: did they just tack on? You know, you're going to play an extra week. I don't think they got any extra days. I think they had settled on the calendar and they had said that they were going to do 20 shows, two a day except for the Sunday when they would only have to do one. And so it could be that they just hadn't assigned where the shows would be yet. Yeah, I don't know. That would be my guess. That's the way I kind of read this version of the story. When you're talking about Jenny Key, it just strikes me that the way the Beatles look, they're clothing and their hair you know fashion was so huge with them and it really remained with them until the end of their career that's how doctor who can put their new doctor in a double-breasted pinstripe blue suit and and you associate that with the beatles to a certain extent there you go they came to this agreement and i wonder how the hotels and how the security if all that was really laid out to any extent beforehand did they even have a rider by this point i mean we know that by the time they came to the states and four they had a rider it's just kind of interesting if those contracts are still in existence somewhere i'd like to see that in a book (laughs) the writers of the australian contract yeah there is a book which I don't have about the Australian tour, but I mean, if someone wanted to do a really beefy volume, the equivalent of what was done for the American tours about the Australian tour, I'd be interested in seeing that. Right. And one of the things that came up for me was with this contract that they had of playing a certain amount of time rather than, I don't know, individual shows. There comes a time when a city, Adelaide, feels left out and they go through stuff to get the Beatles to come to Adelaide and they've got a um, furniture store owner to foot the bill because it was going to cost. So did the first promoter pocket all that money? Because by that time their worth was considerably more. Yes. And so he could have gotten a lot of money out of this guy. And did that get passed on to to the group? Did they benefit from that at all? Again, let's see someone write a book telling us (laughs) the details of this. If we get Mark Lewis's book, I'll bet a lot of those details are going to be in there. I'll bet there. Yeah, because he's about the paper. I'm sure Mark has that piece of paper. And (laughs) Mark will probably spend uh, half a chapter talking about Ken Brosniak uh, coming down and talking to Brian. (laughs) Right. And getting them for a thousand pounds, but you know, you know, you never know whether in, in Brian's head he's thinking, "Well, I'll book them for not a huge amount of money because I'm going to have to sell the Beatles to Australia as well." He's not going to assume that they're going to be huge there by that point. Well, and the weird thing about this number is, okay, that's thirteen shows for a thousand pounds, two a day plus one on the Sunday. 
the Stowe School, we know that that was 100 pounds. They were getting less per show than they did for the Stowe School gig. Are you individually millionaires yet? No, but some of them are lousy, do they? Brian Epstein a millionaire. No, even he's not one, poor fellow. Where does all the money go? Well, a lot of it goes to Her Majesty. <laughs> She's a millionaire. <laughs> the deal was signed. The Beatles went on to start their popularity in the States, and tickets went on sale in Australia, and there were kids camping out for three days. Right. They talked to some of these kids, and uh, kids were waiting in line, and their parents would come and relieve them. <laughs> Several people commented on the innocence of that the early Beatlemania that it was this this big fun coming together of that generation and you know you had a lot of kids hanging out talking Beatles no doubt so it was fun I'm certainly old enough to remember when it was you go to your record store you line up a couple hours before midnight to get into your record store because they gave you wristbands at midnight and then you had to stay in line until 6 a.m. the next day. Right. That was still kind of the same thing. Not nearly exactly the same, but to a certain extent, the descendant of that uh, 30 years later. Yeah. One of the commenters said something about nobody would do that today. That won't ever happen again. And the obvious answer to that is because everybody will do it online. And so that sort of all coming together in that form won't happen, probably. It just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, for better and for worse. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of untoward things happened, not the least of which is a bad actor could probably manage to take some funds off of a lot of uh, unsuspecting kids sitting in those lines. We go to the beginning of their Australasian tour, June 11th, 1964 in Sydney. We get a comment from Dave Glide, who's one of the guys from Sounds Incorporated, who was one of the opening acts that they brought with them. Right. There's footage of them landing. And for some reason, they were when they got on the ground, these... People came in and sprayed the cockpit with something. What I've heard is that they were spraying for TC flies, that they didn't want any to get off of the plane. Okay. Was that a normal practice? Apparently it was. Why would someone be surprised at that? Well, if no one had told them. Apparently the insecticide was rather rank. Right. You know, you're, you're going to have this giant, evil-looking, vile-smelling aerosol sprayed amongst you. While you're just sitting there preparing to get off the plane. The things that won't happen anymore. One, you're not going to stay in line for days for tickets. And the other thing is someone is not going to go through the cockpit spraying some sort of vile substance on people. (laughs) No doubt carcinogenic. (laughs) Really? They got off the truck. It was a gale storm. It was a pouring rain. If you've ever seen Complete Beatles, they use this footage in 66. The Beatles with their umbrellas being blown around and, you know, they play ominous music underneath it. Yeah, it's it's great ominous footage. It's a bit hard when you get up first thing in the morning and you travel all day. You get to a hotel and there's thousands of people outside. You're out in your bedroom. So how they came through, I just don't know.
I have no idea what was the lightning situation like. That I don't know. Because if you're driving in a truck and you've got umbrellas and you're the highest thing on the tarmac. Just the fact that the promoters were like, oh, you got capes, guys. You got these brand new capes, which you just got from Hong Kong. You got umbrellas. Come on, give the kids what they want. My favorite part of that footage is just to watch them all held under umbrellas, except for George, who apparently is dancing in the rain. It's a little bit weird that they stood for that. Yeah. They put them on the back of a milk truck, and they were lashed by the gales of it all, and they're trying to hold their hats on, and they'd had capes made for them by Hong Kong tailors, the stitching of which dissolved in the rain. So their capes are falling apart, and it was just chaotic. But, of course, the media lapped up every second of it, and the kids thought it magnificent. So once they get off of the back of this milk truck, they get into a convertible, an open-air car, which drives them into the city in the middle of this rainstorm. (laughs) Who could explain it? Mal? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm sure Mal was there. Mal was probably busy dealing with getting the instruments off the plane, I would guess, because I don't see him anywhere in this footage. And we know he was there because we see him a little bit later. Right. They get back to the hotel. They, they get into uh, a press conference. Uh, ha ha, funny Beatles. What do you expect to find in Australia? Australians. Right. You know, much of this interviews on the Beatles story LP. Which is a little bit weird, you know? I guess because it was a new interview and they had a high quality copy of it. Yeah. And they were putting this out during their American tour. So. They got good quotes. It may go to say what we're saying, that the Australian experience wasn't that far removed from the American one. Right. That they could use some of the same questions and answers. Yeah, I like the uh, part where John goes, (laughs) Have you been practicing up your Australian accents? So the narrator comes back, tells us that mom and dad Australia instinctively like what they saw. The Beatles were cheeky, but were not snarling. Hey, he also said this was new speech. It was a different way of talking, a youthful way of talking. So this is followed by the story, which we just mentioned briefly. Originally, the Beatles were not scheduled to go to Adelaide. And so Bob Francis, a radio announcer who also ran Big Bob's Beatle Brigade, managed to get 80,000 signatures. And this was just within a couple of days with no internet, really no way to go out and tell people other than, hey, get on the radio and tell kids to sign these things and and get them back to us. Yeah, that stuff works. Kind of amazing to me. We move on to one of the young ladies who was at a girls' school. And, you know, the footage they have of the girls in that girls' school uh, look amazingly like the young girls in Hard Day's Night. (laughs) Jenny Boyd and friends. Right. Hard Day's Night hadn't come out yet. After almost missing out, Adelaide was now the first stop on the concert tour. They drove into Adelaide, didn't they? Yes. In a open car for like nine miles. And there were crowds all the way along the whole nine-mile stretch. It looked just like the footage of Dallas, which had happened six months earlier, basically. Seven and months. I don't know if it's mentioned here, but 
it certainly has been mentioned that George was in JFK's seat. I think this is where they were like, you know what? We're not going to do this again. No public displays. They wanted them to be in an open car in uh, San Francisco, and they refused to do it. And apparently when we get to San Francisco, um, it's been arranged that we'll have a ticker tape welcome, you know, about those. I mean, that's great. I can't imagine that. But it sounds very good. I remember once when we were going to go back for the second uh, tour of America, and they were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to start in San Francisco with a ticker tape parade. And that was once when I actually did say, you know, I'm not going. I'm not, I'm not having a ticker tape parade. You know, I mean, it was only, it seemed like a year as since they just assassinated Kennedy. And um, I could just imagine, you know, this how mad it is in America, you know. They had to create a magazine cover. We get more footage of the Beatles at the hotel, and they're just surrounded by a huge crowd. 300,000 people, half of the entire population of Adelaide, turned out in the streets the day the Beatles came to town. Which is really pretty nuts. We get some more footage of the Beatles on the balcony, John Lennon giving the Hitler salute, although, as you know, John wasn't the only one doing it. No, and and everybody always goes, well, that's John being John, and never mentioned that Paul's doing it. The only difference is John's kind of got a mustache. Yeah, he puts his finger under his nose, and he's... You know, those crowds look better from a balcony, I'll tell you. Um, (laughs) Well, if you're not right in the middle of them, and you're not being, quote, sardine, unquote, yeah, it might be a little bit better, and I mean... This thing ends with them in Liverpool at that reception. That must have been kind of a frightening thing as well. Yeah. As I said, a lot of the Sing for Shell footage is used here. One thing that's kind of amusing, you look at the girls. These are the screaming girls, which they were to cut out and use in the ruddles for the I must be in love sequence. Right. So, you know, it's, it's like Hard Day's Night for real. Oh, for sure. You can barely describe the, the crowd. The crowd is huge. And it won't be the biggest one. They then continue on with kind of what was going on inside the hotel, not outside the hotel. They describe this as being a a revolution in sexual behavior. And then both inside and outside, it was enormous female sexual energy, which I guess would have been quite a surprise at the time. The next song we'd like to do is another one of our records. I think it's one you probably know best. Probably know it best. It's called She Loves You. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. So, all right, this segment ends with some girls who had convinced their mother to actually get them a room in the hotel. And so through their diligence and having a room in the hotel, they managed to get invited to the press conference. Yeah. And they all played Monopoly. With these girls, they were probably being on their best behavior. Yeah, probably. These were young girls. But there were some people who came to the suite that were... Yeah, exactly. So following on from the press conference, the girls got to hang out with the Beatles for a little bit. And then after a while... Uh, some other people, some uh, quite beautiful Adelaide models, went off with the Beatles. Right. 
Um, dot, dot, dot. You know, we'll, we'll find out what happened in the room in a little bit when we talk about some of the other places they went to. But, well, I think we can imagine. Someone arranged for some quite beautiful Adelaide models to attend a party in their suite, and that's what they did. We did see three or four very glamorous girls all made up with the French rolls going into the Beatles room. They reminded us of the girls that were on the cosmetic counters in Martin's. They had beautiful capes on and dressed beautifully, Mm. and yes, they were dolly birds going up. Mm. We didn't seem to mind, though, did we? No, not at all. No, it was interesting. (laughs) It was kind of open like that. It's more or less implied, although we're going to get some more details of what's going on. I mean, they knew what was going on. They didn't mind watching these girls go upstairs, you know. They said, uh, we didn't mind, not at all. It was it was interesting. What were they going to do? I mean, you know, they were 15-year-old girls. Yeah. They had had their hour with the Beatles. It's like, they couldn't expect any more. Yeah. You say you will love me if I have to go. After an unforgettable 48 hours, the Beatles left for Melbourne. Melbourne was even more wild. Yeah, and a little bit more unruly. There's a guy who comes up and runs alongside the car and and yells at them. And it's like, how could this possibly happen? Running up to the car? managing to get through the police and then running alongside the car for at least a little while. I mean, you know, they got the thing on film. So, you know, it was at least a couple hundred feet. Right. So who was allowing this to happen? Nobody, I guess. I don't know that anybody was necessarily expecting it to happen. I mean, a lot of people along the way get overwhelmed by what Beatlemania was because that hadn't really happened on that scale. I mean, I, I know there were crowds for Johnny Ray, but... Uh, well, and, you know, when they do actually play the show, this was where the Sing for Shell show actually happened. Toward the end, a guy actually runs up on the stage and gets on stage and gives John Lennon this big effusive handshake, and, and John's kind of standing there saying, uh, okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. And for years that was a mystery, but they did finally find that guy and he told his story. You know, yeah. Again, something else which would not happen today. But I guess in the States, girls managed to do the same thing, didn't they? Yeah. Get on the stage, put Paul in a bear hug. But security of that sort was not traveling with the Beatles. I mean, the people traveling with the Beatles were still Mal and Neil and Derek. And so physical security had to come from somewhere else. And nobody was really prepared for it. Depending on what city you were in, could affect the effectiveness of the police. So the other thing about Melbourne, this was where Ringo rejoined the band. Hallelujah. We have some nice footage of Ringo arriving and them giving him a a very nice welcome back to the group. Along with that picture we always see of poor Jimmy alone in the airport with, with his gold watch and 500 pounds. Right. There is some footage with Ringo and Jimmy on a balcony together. The thing about that is, you know, much like later when Paul would 
travel over to France for Fool on the Hill. Ringo did not remember his passport. And they still let him on the plane and go to Australia. Brian had someone courier it, and he was reunited with his passport when he reached Australia. But still, it's like, even if you are one of the Beatles, they're going to let you do that? Beatlemania. It would only be three years later that Paul would charm his way into France without his passport. Fame. (laughs) Now, here we get a couple of slightly less savory stories. Uh, That is followed by a uh, brief show of John doing his uh, cripple, his spastic imitation from the Melbourne show. I mean, we, we know about that. I don't know if it was really necessary for them to bring it up again here. And it should be mentioned that in the re-airing of Sing for Shell, they did indeed clip John doing his cripple routine. They clipped it? It it is gone. Ah. They show all the rest of the film, including the film with the opening acts. But John doing his cripple routine is whoosh. It's not there anymore. And then finally, the entertaining that we know was going on in the hotels. That's not even a secret anymore starting with Lennon remembers they make note of that that John described the touring as satiricon on tour I think this tour Jimmy Nichols story of uh, them crawling out of a whorehouse in in Amsterdam and it's like yeah this has to be the tour that John Lennon was thinking of which also goes along with a lot of his other memories which makes sense if as we say this was the first and this was to a certain extent the most vehement that it would ever get. Right. You know, in 65, it was still Beatlemania, but it was maybe falling off just a little bit. And then in 66, it was something different. And while the states were equally exuberant, it wasn't quite like it is in this footage. This is almost really sort of the pinnacle of the best and the worst of Beatlemania. Yeah. I don't know whether that's because in general... U.S. society is really much more prudish about a lot of things. I think you're right. You know. Much less U.K. Even France, they were there in France in January for a fairly lengthy period of time. And from all we know, I'm sure things went on, but that seems to have been a somewhat more innocent time. Says you. I don't know. <laughs> you know. From, from what we know, again... <laughs> Mark, we're waiting. Only because nobody's speaking at this point. I mean, the most naughty story we have out of France was Brian ordering phallic-shaped baguettes. So just going quickly through some of these stories, they talk about how it almost became dinner party conversation to have mentioned, oh, oh yes, I slept with the beetle. Yes. Two other stories. There was a mother who accompanied her daughter, apparently to keep her daughter uh, in line and, well... They both ended up getting uh, beetled on that evening (laughs) on adjacent beds. The Beatles arrived in Sydney the day of Paul McCartney's 22nd birthday. A local newspaper ran a competition asking girls to write in 50 words or less why they should be a guest at a Beatles birthday party. There could have been the most lurid tales and articles appearing. There was a photographer from, I guess, one of the opposing news agencies who had wound his way into the hotel room. 
I think he had a camera. Yeah, he had a camera with him. And so that was not going to fly. He was nabbed by security. And a security guard and John Lennon marched this photographer into the men's room. They shoved his head down the lavatory. They flushed the lavatory. And when he came up for air, John thumped him. They make a point there that, you know, despite their image and despite being international demigods, that the Beatles were underneath it all very tough working class boys. Yeah. The relationship, for the most part, they had with the press was good. So I'm sure there was like, you can hang and we'll talk and do all this stuff as long as you follow these rules. No pictures. And if somebody breaks that, then that would make you pretty mad. And the media was also a different thing. I mean, you know, the famous stories are always that Mickey Mantle went out drinking and whoring and there was never a word of it in in the New York City papers, the New York Post, the tabloids. They wouldn't report any of that. They all knew it. Yeah. You've got to wonder if some of the media were also, you know, getting some of the spoils, so to speak, um, and certainly probably enjoying the parties and probably a bit starstruck themselves. Jenny Key, in the course of this, says she slept with Lennon, so... When you know those cars are coming back from the concert, you go and start pressing the lifts. So we all go up, press the lifts. So we kept pressing the lifts until... They jammed. (laughs) And then you two go to the stairwell. And that's what we did. And guess what? There they were in the stairwell running up to the eighth floor. And they looked at all of us looking like these little fashion girls. And they, and you know, I'm sure we were all very pretty at the time. (laughs) And uh, John looked at me and he said, come up for a party. So that was it. I knew this was going to be a late night, so I rang Mum and uh, I said, Mum, I'm going to a Beatles party. And, like, (laughs) she, the Beatle maniac herself, (laughs) thought it was fantastic. (laughs) She was very naive. I mean, did she think that I would go and sleep with John Lennon? I don't know about that, but she just was so happy for me that I ended up at the party. That was some strategy, wasn't it? Forced them to go to the stairwell. That's perfect. John apparently took one look at her and said, you want to come upstairs for a party? And of course she said yes. And called her mom. (laughs) She did. I mean, and her mom said, oh, well, that's very nice. Yeah. But yeah. Really, Really, mom? Yeah, it's 1964. Go ahead. Hey, whatever. I felt so privileged (laughs) that, that I could just spend that one night with them. It was destiny. (laughs) yeah kind of crazy stuff yeah all i wanted to do was meet them so uh, yeah we (laughs) i did you did and you you had a a famous liaison with john lennon at the time a one night stand a one night stand was that i mean did you talk about it immediately after was it covered in the media as it is today oh no no nothing Nothing, just amongst our friends who were all completely jealous <laughs> because, you know, we got into the hotel room and we, and we, we you know, and I got singled out for the night. So it was... You were the lucky one. I was the lucky one. I got the lucky number. <laughs> Must have been that Asian face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did that really sort of hit home to you that your difference had 
had set you oh, apart then, from other people. Oh, by then I knew <laughs> that, yeah, I was different and, and I also looked different, you know, you know style-wise I looked different. And so that meeting with John Lennon and the effect of Beatlemania, I mean, I've read that you literally got on a boat and went to London after that. I mean, was it as one plus one equals two as that, that, you know, you were inspired to go and live in London? Yeah, that's all all of us young girls wanted was to get to London because we knew that um, that's where the action was. And then there is also a story about Ringo uh, offering a young lady an autograph on her stomach in a, well, very unique fashion. If you're looking for those sorts of stories, you can find at least some of them here. But I, you know, it still manages to not be too bad. And it's, it, it's really not said with the intent of making them look bad. It's almost like, yeah, that was rock and roll. And, and it fits in with their, the story they're trying to tell, which is really, here's the 60s revolution, the oncome of that. And the Beatles were part of what brought that to Australia. Yeah, whoever made this certainly was not being judgmental. It's like, this is what it was. And okay, so then they moved on to Paul's 22nd birthday. Yeah, and somehow the, there was a contest for young girls to participate. They were going to throw a birthday party for Paul and invite 17 girls in. Right. They got 10,000 submissions for those 17 slots. What I want to know is, why did they pick 17? Because you know what I mean? You could be. And did they make a point of seeing who was underage and who wasn't? A gentleman commented that he was pretty sure that that was the main thing they were looking for. That the road manager would look for that would be like no underage girls. Because that'll cripple you. Which is kind of funny, given what we know about Mal. You know, it was Mal who said, oh, well, no, no, no. There were groupies, but I I stayed away from that. Yeah, right, Mal. We believe you. Right. From Sydney to New Zealand, and the Beatles arrive complete with a huge stuffed kiwi. Everyone's happy, especially when Paul rubs noses with Amari. If Australia had been unprepared for Beatlemania... The even more conservative authorities in New Zealand were completely overwhelmed. We see these photos a lot, particularly Paul uh, rubbing noses with the costumed young ladies. Right. They took part in all the culture stuff, you know. They wore outfits and... Played the part, shall we say. Yes. Rubbing noses, that's just a little bit out of the ordinary. Do you think that that was the touristy thing that occurred? You get off the plane... There's somebody there you rub noses with. Oh, uh, no. I think these were there for the Beatles. It's not like the young ladies in Hawaii who give you a lay when you come off the plane. It's like, no, this this was something that was arranged. I can't imagine they would bring girls in costume for just anybody. They're certainly not going to rub noses against every passenger which gets off the New Zealand plane. Well, how many people were flying to New Zealand, for God's sake? Well, this is true. I mean, especially back then, it took over a day to get down there. Right. Now, you know that the security was actually quite a bit tighter in New Zealand because there's barbed wire everywhere. Yeah, and stretches for quite a distance. So you were not going to get across this line. Was that for the Beatles or was that for the crowd or was that (laughs) because that's the only way the police knew how to handle things? (laughs) To keep the rebels back, the New Zealand rebels? Uh, I don't know. 
on the other side of this, when we get to Brisbane, there really were some people who, while not quite looking to do harm, were looking to uh, make a mockery of, of the proceedings. So the thing about those two shows, the first show at the Wellington Town Hall was apparently pretty awful. Not because the Beatles were playing bad, but because they refused to turn up the sound to sufficient levels. Right. Yeah. Quiet Beatle music wasn't going to go down. With girls screaming at 747 takeoff levels of... Right. And Lennon threatened to quit the tour. That's it. Johnny Devlin managed to get in there and quiet John down at least a little bit, or at least convince him, no, look, we've got to get this done. I mean, their livelihood was also on the line because if John quit the tour, the Beatles quit the tour, there was no rest of the tour. And and as he mentioned, he kind of already spent some of that money. Right. So before the next show, Johnny Devlin went down and actually dealt with the soundman show them where to put the faders, even though they didn't really want to go there. And that was enough to make John happy enough. And, you know, if they couldn't hear themselves, how did they know that it wasn't really coming through, I wonder? You hear stuff coming back from the back wall. You just If you can't hear anything, you'll know. So you think that's what the deal was? It just wasn't loud. It didn't have any punch. But after doing all that for them, the Beatles... Gave him a picture. They told him he could have whatever he wanted, and that's what he wanted. And granted, a press picture that you can guarantee was signed by all four of them is worth quite a pretty penny these days. Right. So maybe at the time it wasn't much, but we know he kept it. He still has it. So if he hasn't sold it in the intervening 10 years, but. Right. Okay, then on to Brisbane. The Beatles flew into Brisbane, the final port of call on their tour and received an unexpectedly hostile reception. Well, the Beatles landed at about midnight at Eagle Farm Airport, which was the old Brisbane airport, and they were uh, pelted with eggs and fruit by uh, some university students. And now, as I understand it, one of those students was Bob Cather, the present federal MP. Got up at 12 o'clock to try and do some study, which was a bit of a joke, but anyway. Um, boys kicked the door open, get your gear on, going to egg the Beatles. I had a Beatle motor, can't you? And um, um, I said, who or what are the Beatles? And um, one of them said, love me do. The first vaguely negative reception, although it wasn't really that much of a negative reception, it was uh, frat boys. This part made it on the Beatles story as well. Again, we'd spoken of John Lennon uh, coming back as someone. Here, Paul says that he'd definitely have a go if he got a chance to uh, get into a battle with these young men. John will put the boot in. <laughs> the egg throwers were did not have good aim. Well, I mean, again, they were crowded by lots of people, and the crowd managed to bust probably 80 to 90% of the eggs that they had with them. Right. More... Sort of vaguely, slightly naughty talk. Benzedrine and Scotch, that was apparently their stimulant of choice at that point in time. Yeah, it was interesting that they used Sounds Incorporated to kind of introduce this and go, hey, you know, in Hamburg, it was, everything was okay. It's all legal. Thanks to Mark, we know that story that they used to take the Vicks inhalers and the stick inside was nothing but Benzedrine. Right. And they would just put that under their tongues. So before they can even get it in tablets, that's how they would get their high. More stories about girls. I'm interested to see how you're going to read this one. <laughs> <laughs> I 
any time of the, of the night, there were no less than, say, 10 or 12 girls lined up outside. And finally, John had had enough, and he leaped to his feet, and he flung open the door. Ladies, you can all go get F. And a voice from down the corridor said, there'll be trouble if we're not. That response just makes me think, you know, John would go, yeah, you, come here. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one that John would choose. <laughs> I've got enough energy to do one more. You're it. <laughs> You're it. <laughs> oh. Because you really got a hold on me. I think it's fine if young women want to um, sleep with, you know, a superstar. <laughs> uh, one of the talking heads makes the statement that a rock band today couldn't get away with what the Beatles got away with. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. I mean, oh, I think they absolutely could. And I don't even know that it would matter as much because our society has changed in, in so many ways. Ten years ago, it wouldn't have mattered. But nowadays, you know, Me Too and cancel culture, I could see that being kind of a even if it was consensual, I could see that being kind of a thing. I, I'm not going to say yes or I'm not going to say no. It will matter to those people who it would matter to. And, and otherwise, absolutely. People still want to become rock stars because, well, there are groupies that will accompany that. Or women. <laughs> well, it's still probably not quite like what the Beatles had. Not ones and twos, but <laughs> ten deep for as long as you want it. Yeah. Well, I've heard stories, which I can't really pass on without being libelous, perhaps. It is not your place to pass them on. Or maybe it is. I don't know. And so here is where they talk about Mal and carefully going through the girls and ensuring that they all at least appeared to be of age, whether they were of age or not. Right. One of the Sound Incorporated guys comments that uh, he's surprised that there weren't a whole array of baby beetles born in Australia in 1965. I mean, there might be some, but normally we kind of find out about these illegitimate children, at least if they know about who their parentage is. <laughs> right. They'd only be like 60 years old. I'm not doubting there are some out there, but I mean, I, a whole array is probably a bit much. Out of Hamburg, and we know about all of their uh, dalliances in Hamburg. There were only you know two or three, and they all seem to be Pauls. Right. That leads them to suspect that they were shooting blanks, and it's like we can't say that with any degree of certainty. And they did all manage to eventually have children, Ringo in particular. So yeah, <laughs> and Paul. The segment ends with referring to the twang of a g-string which i thought was a cute little bit of double entendre there right that is the end of this run of the tour the documentary ends with some sort of general comments you know the beatles returning to returning home to attend the premiere of hard day's night and you know lots of commentary from the various talking heads we've seen throughout this whole thing there's one comment which i do like a whole lot i can't think of any other artist that is so synonymous with the period in which they were performing and that's probably true elvis in the 50s but it's not just elvis in the 50s yeah you know single artists who so strongly represents a single period in time right although the the, the part that bothered me about this was that they're closing up and they're playing hello goodbye and all you need is love and i'm thinking whoa 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 
That's not necessary. This whole kind of end is a little bit unnecessary. Yeah. After we get the talking heads in, you know, I kind of would have gone with more of the, they were part of the revolution, the sexual revolution, the musical revolution, the societal revolution in Australia, rather than just this mumble mumble, peace and love. Yeah. Over the closing credits, they've got clips of, each of the Beatles talking about various things from Australia. You know, it, it's half as bad as it looks because this is this is how you always see us being interviewed and things. And it looks as though you think, God, you know, they must have a terrible life being interviewed every minute of the day and so having to meet people and things. But it's not true. George's quip is nice. Everything's been exciting. I think uh, when we got to America, we found that they'd gone potty. <laughs> and when we got back to Britain last. October, we'd been touring Sweden, and when this Beatlemania thing started, you know, we didn't we didn't hear about it because we were away, and we just landed in London. Everybody was there smashing the place up. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. You're pretty much confined to barracks. No, no, I don't want to go out particularly anyway. Why is this? You're too tired? I'm not tired. I just I don't, you know, it doesn't interest me to go looking around buildings and stuff like that. I'm quite happy staying. Then they end the thing on something which borders on bad taste to me. I mean, although John did say it in the press conference there. You're really looking at the people, aren't you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You're very aware of everything around you. Yeah, I think you've got to be. You know, you might get shot. The, you know, the reporter asks, you know, uh, are you aware of what's going on? And, and you know, John John just kind of returns and replies, You're, you have to be very aware of everything around you. You've got to be because you might get shot. And that is how this thing ends. I think that's kind of in poor taste. Uh, okay, I, I don't. The statement that he makes, of course, is having to do with Kennedy. Yeah, and the drive he was talking about. I mean, the whole thing of how things were going, a little bit more menacing. It is something that John actually said during the tour, but I think ending the show with it is what's, I you know, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm saying, I think don't end the program like this. It's not like we all forgot. Yeah, exactly. We're talking about Beatlemania here. I, I really don't need to be reminded of that here. Could have put that earlier when you were playing some of these press conference clips during the context of the show. There's lots of other funny or time-appropriate John Lennon clips you could have stuck on at the very end here. I get what you're saying. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't make me rate the special any lower. I think it's a very good special. <laughs> right. It is. You know, I think it they is. did They did a very yeah. good hour. They just slightly blow it at the end here, at the very end right. here. And in fact, there's a version of this on the internet, and it ends right during John Lennon's comment, which is, it was kind of amusing. You know, who, whoever was putting this up on the internet might have thought the same thing. Well, clearly it was Elon Musk because they cut it up. <laughs> so overall, you know, I think we kind of don't give Australia and the Australasian tour enough credit. And this documentary really kind of makes me look at it again in a slightly different way. It was a really yeah. important tour for them because I think you got kind of the best 
of it as far as that enthusiasm, the innocence of the enthusiasm. The whole thing, it wasn't shots going off or any of the whole hubbub around the bigger than Jesus. It was frat boys going out to throw eggs and tomatoes. It's like, okay. <laughs> right. You know, that was as bad as it got on this tour, other than. As we said, to be in that crowd would have been terrifying. It, it's amazing that there weren't more kids killed or any kids killed that I know of, as opposed to like Dallas. The crowd that I saw in Melbourne, I think it was, I mean, everybody was so packed tight that had you fallen down, you, there was no way to extricate yourself. I mean, that was a dangerous crowd. Undulating humanity is the way I would describe it. Yeah. It's like you're you're watching a sine wave go back and forth. Exactly. And then you realize that it's just made up of these individual people who are just jammed together. It's the good and the bad of Beatlemania. As we spoke with Ken Womack uh, a while back, you know, last year, it's like there were a lot of really scary things going on. Yeah. Absolutely. I guess we're fortunate, or certainly the kids are fortunate, that there really was a little bit more case of people kind of looking out for each other. Right. You know, if not all you need is love, it's like, well, okay, we're all here for a common purpose. Let's make this as good as we possibly can for everybody in the crowd. And then for them as a band, it's just mind-blowing to think that in 12 months you go from their final gig of the cavern to this an amazing amount of global recognition in a very, very short time. And you can still say that even in an age of the internet for sure that just somehow it managed to all fall into place everywhere. Yeah. It's unfathomable. How it worked. It's truly a, a miraculous story. I think this is a good special. You can find it on the internet. We'll put a link up in our Facebook group. Cool. You like it as well? Oh, absolutely. I think it was uh, a very good look at Beatlemania in all its forms. A lot of this stuff was going on in the U.S. It was just no one here had the balls to show it. I would argue that it wasn't quite to the same level. Well, I, I would agree with that, yes. I've seen footage where, might be in Memphis, it's some some city where the police are there at the hotel because of a report of an underage girl in one of the Beatles rooms. And that thing is like, well, I actually kind of don't necessarily believe that one. I think that was the police looking for a story. At midnight, we called the curfew. We told the kids that uh, they were in violation of it, those under 18 years of age, and they would have to move on. It came to our attention at that time from a couple of the girls on the sidewalk that they had friends who they were waiting for that were within the motel. We then fell, of course, that the only place they would be is on the fifth floor of the motel where the Beatles were housed. We went to the fifth floor and uh, we completely shook down the fifth floor doing this with the aid of pass keys, knocking on doors and uh, telling people that uh, the curfew was now uh, enforced and that they would have to have guests leave the hotel. What was their reaction to this enforcement? 
Some of the members of the troop, Phil, became very indignant. They told us that Minneapolis was a very narrow-minded town, as were its police officials. And That's the infamous, I don't care if another one of these groups ever comes this way again, police footage. Right. I don't know if it was necessarily in the room, but it was certainly on the floor and in the hotel trying to get to them, I think. But it may have been that they said that the girl was in their rooms, but that whole tour of the States... They had to find their fun when they could, and that's why the blowout in Los Angeles was such a big deal. They had a couple days off, and they had a very nice place that they were staying in. Free to indulge where for the last month, you know, it was catch as catch can. Yeah, and they weren't doing night after night. All right, that is When the Beatles Drove Us Wild. It's from Australian television, and as I say, you know, sometime soon here we'll probably get to the re-airing of the Sing for Shell show, not next week, but sometime uh, in the near future. You take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at when they was fab and on gmail the opening theme was written produced and recorded by jay young kim beaster famine studios san francisco california Peter Smith. This has been a National Television Network production. The Shell Company of Australia hope you've enjoyed meeting Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr in Australia on the Beatles Sing for Shell. Go Martin, go well. Go Shell. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.